You are listening to the Venture Scale SaaS Operator, the podcast where we interview founders who are actually in the trenches. We talk about the transparent journey of how they build their SaaS companies, how they grow them, and what they would do differently if they would do it all over. Hey folks, with us today is Sondre Rush, CEO of Safety Wing. Super happy to have you. Great to be here, Nicholas. Awesome. So I think one company, like now you know from two companies, basically Safety Wing, which is at least in the remote in, uh, freelancer space, quite big already. And then uh, Super Slide, Super Slide as well. Um, I think I would love to dive right into what Safety Wing actually does for its customers in terms of what problem it solves. Yeah. So Safety Wing right now, the product we offer is Nomad Insurance and Remote Health. So it's both nomad insurance is health and travel medical insurance for digital nomads, people who work online and live abroad and, uh, health, remote health, health insurance for remote teams, um, that works anywhere in the world. So what problems does this solve? Well, for nomads, it's, you know, the possibility to have, you know, um, yeah, they, they live abroad so that it's not, doesn't work with just travel insurance. They need something they can have for months and months or years and years. Uh, on a subscription and uh, for remote health, you have companies who have high remotely. So they have often typical employees and contractors in many countries. And so you want to be able to offer benefits, uh, all of the same for all of them. And uh, now you can, that, can do that with remote health. So is your, so you're kind of split between like a, a more like a D2C directly to like the, the, the remotes for the benefits and then for the health, it's more like a B2B play. Did you initially start out that way or how did you uh, begin this whole journey? Uh, no, we, we didn't. Uh, so I should say we start out and we still are on the plan to make a global social safety net and a country on the internet. So, which means we want to make all the benefits, health, retirement, income protection available as a membership. Uh, but concerning if we were selling a lot to consumers or, or companies, we started out with uh, consumers. We didn't think we would sell to companies. And, uh, but then we just kept getting asked it all the time. So this was actually something we changed a little bit in. Uh, every day we would get some more companies asking if they could you know, buy it for their employees. So we understood <laughs> that uh, that was also an issue. It's a, it's a bit of a separate issue, um, right? So a remote team has employed, like Safe Doing right now, we have uh, you know, 150 plus team members in 60 different countries and, you know, as a company, you want to offer benefits and stuff, but yeah, that, that just wasn't available before. And, uh, it certainly wasn't available to offer the same to everyone. Um, but now, but now you can. So, so yeah, that was, uh, that was a learning after the start. Yeah. And so you started out in 2017 with then basically the, the consumer version. At what point did you make the switch to also go the B2B route? We started right after we launched actually to figure out because we discovered this almost immediately. Uh, we didn't see this as like a big pivot, uh, by the way. Like uh, we just thought, oh, it would be nice if there was also a dashboard so companies could add members. Uh, so at the time, strategically, we saw it as a bit of a minor feature, although I realized later that it is a big change because you have to... Uh, these, these two different users, a company and a, 
and the consumer are different in how you market to them. But uh, yeah, so we started that pretty shortly thereafter, although we launched it in 2020, March 3rd, 2020, we launched Remote Health uh, as well as the company dashboard. God, that's quite close to, to COVID. So how, how was the whole COVID situation for you? you know, I mean, you're, you're like directly in touch with people's like health in a way. So how, how, how was COVID for you as a company? COVID for us was uh, quite an adventure. Uh, it was two different things happen at the same time. So to start with the sort of uh, challenging part. So the challenging part was the only product we had customers on at the time was Nomad Insurance. Nomad Insurance is insurance for digital nomads. And uh, if you can recall, travel was basically made illegal for a while. And uh, so that was, uh, that, was a, that was a real challenge uh, for that product. And we also had a series of moral dilemmas. So I'll, uh, I'll give one quick one. You know, we covered evacuation. And that evacuation was triggered if a travel warning was put on a country. And uh, in March 2020, a travel warning was put by this U.S. agency uh, for in the whole world, which meant every single one of our customers uh, qualified for evacuation. And if they took that, one, that would be expensive, and two, they would also run out of, uh, they would not be a customer anymore because it only works, as a product only works when you're abroad. But uh, the, the moral dilemma was nobody knew about this coverage. It was a bit obscure. Um, so we had the option of like telling people and we had this internal discussion about it. And uh, we ended up, uh, you know, it's a very sort of value-based discussion where uh, we ended up saying, well, we, you know, we, we, we have to do it to live up to this aim for the ideal value and stuff. So um, in particular by my co-founder, Sarah. and. So we, we announced it and we sort of like two weeks till the evacuation thing runs out one week, 24 hours, and we were up online on customer service and a third of our customers did evacuate. There was an existential risk, uh, but we didn't die. And come August, we start to reap the benefit of this way of acting throughout COVID a lot because we, people noticed that how we communicated. 20 of the top 40 ambassadors for World Nomads, which was sort of like a competitor in this, that part of the product at the time switched to us during the summer months. And from December, that was from August to December, we grew at like 300%, even if the market was flat. Um, so it was a happy ending, but very like dramatic. And uh, um, okay, so that's one. Number two, happen at the same time and is a completely different story, which is about remote work. So remote in March 3rd, 2020, we launched this uh, remote health, health insurance for remote teams. And we had the whole team here in San Francisco for a launch event uh, where I'm currently sitting. We launched that out of this place called Parisoma, a co-working space that was later shut down during COVID. 200 people were at the launch event. One of the slides on the launch event said, in 10 years, most companies will be remote. And then the next weekend, all companies were remote. <laughs> so that happened. And we were like, not perfectly positioned for that hype, but it certainly accelerated the advent of remote work by several years. It was a massive um, demand for this product. And we were not really ready for it. So it's like, for 
throughout that time, the whole almost company was about just meeting the demand and trying to onboard customers um, for that product. And so much was as manual because we thought it was only going to be like in a beta customer trial phase for like six to 12 months. It wasn't ready to be scaled. So it was this super hectic period. Um, yeah. So that's how COVID was like for us. I mean, that's, that's quite all right. How, how did you, like asking you as like the human, basically, how did you emotionally cope with that? Because from the outside, it sounds crazy stressful. And then especially the, this mix of up and down is like not easy to handle as a founder. Yeah. How did I cope with that? Uh, you know, I, I went for a lot of walks. Uh, well, especially I would, we, there's a rooftop terrace in the, this house, the safe doing house. So, uh, you know, I used to have a very nice, uh, exercise, uh, thing, uh, for an hour or so on the rooftop while listening to, to, to audiobooks. I remember that was that time up there on the roof was, uh, very helpful, uh, to, uh, to think this through, but Frankly, it wasn't that bad. It was kind of because when things get bad enough, you kind of switch into a different gear. So like within normal life, you're like normal stressful. And then like something like that sounds terribly stressful, but there's like a line. And if you pass that line, it's like you're <laughs> like, it's like things are so beyond normal that you're entering into a different thing and it feels uh, much better actually. So that was what uh, that was like. I mean, it was just such a chaotic kind of gung-ho situation, like with max uncertainty, because of course this was also the beginning of COVID. I don't know if you remember, but like it was, it was so uncertain with what would happen with the whole world, uh, much less our company. So, um, so, uh, so, so yeah, so it, it more had this feeling of this sort of Mad Max, uh, kind of road, uh, <laughs> as you've seen Mad Max Fury Road, like it felt like being more in one of those cars, uh, you know, than just being in normal life and being stressed out. It wasn't, uh, so it was kind of fun actually. This episode is brought to you by reactsquad.io, the boutique react agency for SaaS startups. If your front end team is overwhelmed and you need more hands on deck, Go to reactsquad.io and get a React.js developer embedded in your team in less than seven days. Coming back to right now in the, I mean, we have like June 23. So it's, I mean, 2023. So it's like quite a weird situation, like the tech ecosystem, because in a way this AI hype is like going strong. Everything's like looking nice on the outside, but also like, Companies are dying left and right. People run out of money. People's stock options are worthless. So it's like not the fun, funnest of times, basically. So as a CEO of like a 150-person company, right, in like still the center of tech uh, SF, how do you manage the current times? Well, in which way are you thinking? I mean, mostly in terms of both as a VC big fund, like in terms of like in investor outlook i mean what like basically like shifting goals around but also like did you need to like cut burn or how like how you manage it like on the strategic level basically yeah 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 i guess the, the listeners here are mostly startup people right so um but if not i'll you know explain briefly like you know fundraises you do typically under normal times you know seed series a b c d 
well, actually right now it's like angel round seed, uh, two, two rounds before series A typically, but, uh, yeah, you know, typically there's like a year, year and a half between each of those. Um, and we kept on that, right? So we had like kind of angel round and white combinator in 2018, seed round 2019, series A 2020, series B spring 2022. So under normal circumstances, by the end of this year, we would be, you know, looking at fundraising again, but as there's basically a bit of a downturn, well, I would say there is a bit of a downturn in the economy, but particularly in tech startups and VC. Um, so basically anyone who doesn't have to fundraise or who aren't doing some kind of company, which stumbled on a kind of AI explosion, they're not fundraising now. Uh, including us, because it's just a super bad time to do that. Like, uh, yeah, everyone I talk to or fundraising hate it uh, right now. So, so yeah. So I mean, we discovered this happening last spring. You know, we we raised our Series B at a great timing, uh, and by the time summer come, we were realizing we were in a different environment and that we probably should aim at being able to. So we kind of had a more frugal path. We didn't have to do any like massive kind of layoffs or cut that sort, but we did change our path to invest much less and be frugal. So uh, to essentially let our revenue catch up with our burn. And we are now on like a path to break even. We're not quite there yet, but like we're on a path. So, so we can raise whenever we want to. Um, so that was one thing we did and I hope, and the people who didn't do that are in trouble. Um, so that's one one thing. Um, another thing, you know, as of August last year, and I'm guessing a lot of people in SaaS had this, but like our customers are startups. So we were affected in two ways. One is other companies, startups did have layoffs, right? So we had worse net retention. Um, I, I'm seeing that falling, by the way, as of like this quarter, it started to, to peak. It peaked in last quarter, but that's kind of been gradually going up since last spring. And then it peaked last quarter. So that's one way we were affected. And then also as of August last year, we started seeing sales cycles going up. Um, and uh, yeah, but all things considered, we're in pretty, like we're in somewhat, like we're in good shape, right? The 2022 versus 2021 was like 2X growth, which isn't, you know, as much as we would have hoped, but it still is completely f fine. You know, at our level, we have like, uh, you know, over, over 25 million in, in top line. So, um, that's, that's how we are dealing with it. Like we're, we're being frugal so we can have completely choose when we want to fundraise, when the market is right. Uh, and, uh, and we're going slower than we would have, but still at like, kind of like startup trajectory. Makes, makes a ton of sense. And I would love to switch gears a bit because I stalked you a bit on similar web as one does. And it's like around 500k in traffic, of course, like similar web, so who knows. Um, but how, what's your main acquisition channel? Or like, how do you approach growth from like a marketing perspective? The way I approach uh, growth can be summed up in the line, make something people want and then tell them about it. Uh, that's one thing I come to believe in a lot. That's a Paul Graham line. And then the other thing is, uh, is this idea about mimetic desire. Like why do people want things? One reason is they look at what 
other people want and they just copy that. Um, so those two insights, I think, can be summed up in a marketing strategy that starts with making, you know, a unique product of high quality before we try to scale it. And uh, I would, you know, for my own purposes, for all practical purposes, I would define, you know, product market fit is usually defined as like the runaway growth situation, which I have been into. But I don't think that's a useful definition. That comes and goes. I think the useful definition is when customers are recommending your product to their friends spontaneously. That is a real uh, normative, like important change in a company because that's when I would say your product works. Uh, people would only recommend it to a friend if it, if it worked. Um, and so that's the time when you can start investing in growth. Uh, and we did that in Safe Doings history. This is something, uh, everything I'm saying now, by the way, is like things I've learned the hard way by doing it wrong over and over again until I finally gave up. Um, this is not something I came to easily. Um, so, and then I would say, you know, the, the, yeah, the in implementation of the kind of mimetic desire as a growth strategy is basically influencer. So we have an ambassador program for nomad insurance. Um, you know, influencers, bloggers, YouTubers, uh, recommending our product authentically. Uh, either we have sponsorships and such. So we don't do ads. We don't do performance ads. So that's on consumer. So today, two thirds word of mouth, one third via ambassador program. That's our growth. Do you, do you measure that by like an opt-in form when people join or how, how do you like on the super tactical level for, for a founder out there, how should they know or how should they track how good they are in terms of word of mouth? Because in a way you need to measure it before you need, before you can like make it yeah. better. You know, that, that it is really hard to, to measure word of mouth, but uh, the, the way you do it is, you know, you ask, uh, what did you hear about it? Because of course the way this will show up is, you know, it's not like you can look at Google analytics and see what's word of mouth. You know, you will have some from direct, you will have some from search, you will have some from, but in our case, right, we will know because we're not doing anything else. But if you're doing it, you can be really confused by seeing that a third of your traffic comes from social and a third from search. So we know we're not spending any money on that or posting anything there. So we are well aware that that is a version of word of mouth. It's just that people are you know, basically searching for the name of the company or clicking through. That's one version. And from social, people discuss the company in groups, people post things to channel, people post things to messenger. Um, so yeah, the, the way you figure that out is ask, where did you hear about us? Uh, people, uh, the way people will answer that, people are not going to answer, heard about it from a friend, by the way. Um, so you just, you have to read the results with a bit of a wide thing. Like people, you know, might say they heard about it from Reddit, but of course we know, knowing every single post about it on Reddit, that it's not because we are advertised on Reddit or, or something like that. It's because there are digital nomad groups on Reddit, right? Where they're discussing. So this is kind of how digital word of mouth works, right? People talking about it in communities and, and, yeah. and, uh, and forums. So, yeah. So anyway, that's, uh, but that, that's the brief answer. And then on another, like on a, a tactical again, because like I, I just try to, especially on the growth things, I think the tactical things actually help. Um, so on the influencer side, do you manage them in-house? Do you have like, is there a specific agency you're working with? Or because I could imagine that the breadth of influencers is 
is quite big and it's likely not like one or two huge influencers or like how how do you do you manage that on like an operational uh, level basically yeah we uh i i didn't use any of the tools still don't actually so uh i mean the way we did it we, we first built like a very light tracking link thing and we just gave that manually we would sometimes post newsletters basically affiliate but it's also done by sponsorships right so we would have um search in relevant keywords, reach out to top blogs, ask if they wanted to review or add us a review or write about us. Uh, and then we would have like both sponsorships like hundred dollars or a few hundred dollars, five hundred dollars. In some cases, even big sponsorships in a couple of cases. And then they would also use the tracking link, but they would not be motivated by the tracking link in the beginning, of course, because we don't like there's no history reason they would think that would work. Um but uh yeah so but the uh the affiliate program and stuff like that, that's, it's basically, it's kind of like SEO, like it's just filled up by hoaxers. So you, that's why it doesn't work, uh, work. So works much better to just reach out yourself to, to people like people that you, you would, yeah, to, to, to someone you yourself would. And today this is like a whole program. So there's like ambassador program. There's like an outreach team. There's a community team. We have a community of ambassadors. They run regular campaigns every month. There's like, there's like even gatherings for ambassadors. Um, yeah. So, and we made this like amazing user experience for ambassadors where you can sign up. There's a referral program for ambassadors that actually works. Um, so we get kind of word of mouth on the ambassadors. Uh, there is also this super nice uh, graphs and dashboard yeah so so now we've built out a ton but of course um we were yeah. there in the beginning for, for founders who who are looking to implement that is there like one or two spe specific things where you would say damn I, it would have been so much better if we would have done that from day one just like any learnings on the invest program things we're doing it now similar to where we do that one but along the way we did it super different so uh, we've made the massive mistakes in the middle, not the beginning, which sounds so counterintuitive. But, uh, and I, I can just go through those briefly. So there are many things that people think about an ambassador program that are wrong, but that are very plausible sounding. Uh, and it's like, I almost am not able to convince people here uh, that, which is hence why uh, we tried it. So I'll give you a couple of them. So for example, in the beginning, like today, we would reach out to what we saw to be like good, uh, you know, bloggers or YouTubers who we, you know, thought had good quality, offer some kind of sponsorship, uh, bring them on the thing. And we would urge them to just use, mix, include us in some normal content they were making, um, like their own tone of voice, like, because it has to be authentic, otherwise it doesn't work uh, for this purpose, which is how, how we use it. We're not using it as an ad, but as a recommendation. Um, so, and what is the thing that is tempting to do that we tried for like a couple of years in the middle that doesn't work? It's basically anything that makes it kind of like an ad. So for example, having a, like a widget. So you, they think, you think along the way like, oh yeah, that's like a huge win. Like they ask for it, blah, blah, blah. And, and then turns out, no, that actually just, it actually removes the value of it because people see it as an ad. So they don't see the recommendation as authentic. And so they don't trust it. Um, 
That's one. Another one is, um, yeah, like uh, writing almost the articles, making the content for the influencer. Oh yeah, that will help them finally get this written. No, because then it's not authentic, which is back to the same thing. It doesn't work as a recommendation, which is the purpose of it. Uh, the, the, the audience recognizes that this is not the kind of stuff they're normally viewing from this YouTube creator, obviously. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, so that's another one. Uh, the worst one. Oh my gosh. This one we have made and then we remade it after we learned it once, which is so painful. And that's the following. You, 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 you get a bunch of ambassadors in and then you look at the sales list and then you notice inevitably that the top Ambassadors make most of the sales, right? Okay, so here's the, the logical thing that you will think is plausible. Let's just focus on those top ones. Let's only get big ones in. Okay, it's so plausible, right? Like just saying it now, like I'm like, how can that possibly not be the case? Well, the thing is, that's a different strategy that basically flatlines growth. We've seen it happen twice. I think that the best analogy I've come across is like baseball. It's kind of like saying, I will only hit home runs. So if you only hit home runs, what you end up doing is you just swing much less and you don't necessarily hit more home runs even. You're just swinging much less and you don't know actually which one is going to be the home run. Uh, you can have like, of course you can improve your target audience a little bit, but you can do that while still swinging, right? You can still improve your swing uh, so yeah, so if you think you're only, I'm only going to swing if I know it's a home run is a, a, a recipe for s just swinging less times, getting less hits, including less home runs, less of everything. So it's a, it's a, it's a strategy to flatline that sounds like the most correct strategy ever. Such a, a counterintuitive one. So yeah, so that's, that's one path we've gone down and then return two times. Um, yeah, that's, that's another one. You, you just want to have large volume. Treated like a funnel that doesn't end at the point where the influencer signs up or even posts the content, but as a funnel that goes even further than that, um, where, uh, yeah, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to be a hundred percent hit rate. You just go, go through the funnel and, uh, the, you try to improve every step of the funnel, but, uh, the, the, you know, you got to keep the top line filled up. You can't, uh, you can't say we're only going to have the people who go through hundred percent through the funnel. I think that it was super valuable and uh, and a great point to wrap up. Sonja, was that was a really insightful interview. Thanks a ton for providing all of the, those tactics. Thank you, Nicholas. Great to be here. If you like this episode, you will love our newsletter, The SAS Operator by Early Note. Get actionable insights from SAS veterans like Patrick Campbell, Christoph Jans, and Corey Haynes right into your inbox. A five-minute read every Tuesday for free. Go to alno.com and subscribe for free.